Welcome to another episode of Infinite Games. This week, we cover a bunch of topics, including using deadlines as a manager to create accountability, using a referral program to help with recruiting, and hiring employees by promoting from within the company. Uh, but before we dive into all that, I just want to mention we're still experimenting with the structure of this podcast. Um, we're kind of narrowing in on a few different formats that we like. One is giving updates about our business and discussing those. Um, another is what we call bullish or bearish, where we discuss and oftentimes kind of debate uh, different high-level topics. And a final one is kind of story of the week, where we basically talk about kind of topics that have been in the news. So we're interested in your feedback. First of all, on do, do some of those formats interest you more than others? But another question we have is how we should break these down within a specific episode. Because uh, for this one, we actually recorded a full two hours, and our plan is to break it into a few different episodes. Um, but we're not sure how small to make it. So a couple options. One is we can uh, kind of do one week, we'll do updates. The next week, we'll do bullish or bearish and kind of switch each week kind of has a different format. Um, we could do a grab bag where within a given week, you kind of get a little bit of each. Um, and another option is to break it down even smaller, where maybe each episode is just a little 10 or 15 minute discussion about a specific topic, and we'd release them more frequently. Um, and you could kind of pick and choose. Do you prefer that small bite-sized type of experience versus having a bunch of things mixed together that maybe have more of a common thread connecting them. So if you have any thoughts on that, please let us know. And with that, we will dive into the episode. Enjoy. Hey, Tyler, we're back. What's going on? Uh, not a whole lot. I, uh, you know, holidays are coming up. So I, I'm kind of, are, are you the type of person who uh, kind of you expect not to get as much done between like Thanksgiving and New Year's basically? I should be, but I always have unrealistic expectations. I'm just coming to terms <laughs> with Mondays are going to be meeting Mondays, so you probably won't get any deep work done, but uh, I'm still under an illusion when it comes to holidays. Yeah. I like personally get some work done on holidays, but what I'm really coming to terms with is the rest of the team is going to be taken off a lot and you really can't count on in the background, you know, normally there's just stuff getting done and then I'm kind of like, none of that stuff's going to get done. But anyway... Uh, did have some big news actually just earlier today. So one of our developers said that he was he's going to leave the company in Q1 of next year, all under good terms. And he's going to do like performing artist stuff. It's not like he uh, is going to some other tech company or something. But so I'm very happy for him. But then it's like, well, how do we how do we replace him? And so we were trying to decide, do we go out and try and recruit someone or uh, basically try to build up someone who's already at the company in a different role and kind of get them learning how to code and stuff like that. So we officially decided today we're moving one of our customer service people into that dev role. And uh, so that, that that's exciting and kind of scary because like she minored in computer science and took a, went through a coding boot camp, but is like definitely not where you'd expect a, you know, a like professional software engineer to be. Yeah, a question I have about that is what's the state of the engineering team? Are you guys at a point of stasis? Or are you looking to grow the team overall? Uh, I would say we are entering stasis in that we we kind of went from three to six or seven, depending on how you count it, people over the last year, year and a half. So it's actually grown quite a bit recently, but we're not planning on growing it much beyond this. The logic being... I think this is about as much as I can design and as the kind of the lead developer, you know, there's like code reviews and training and all that. Like we basically decided this is about the size we can handle before we take whatever the next step is and become like, like add another layer of management or w whatever that looks like. Yeah. I was listening to our last episode on small giants and remember that you said 
uh, something about hiring a designer. Do you think that that would change in the near future if you found the perfect designer to work with that you then may scale up? Uh, yeah, good question. You, you know. So I'm. This is this is hard, and you're going to think I'm stupid for this. So we we found a designer that were like is going really well, but she lives in Bermuda, and. I, as we've talked about before, and I'm sure we'll again in the future, I support remote work, but that's not what we're doing here. And if, if you let one person be remote, then like everybody else is going to be. So, uh, we're working, she's in a contract role right now. And it's like, is she going to want to move to St. Louis if everything goes well? It's a hard sell Bermuda versus St. Louis. But, uh, anyway, she's right now taking a role that would go to a developer otherwise. So basically if she doesn't work out, we'll go hire a developer and we'll be in stasis. If she does work out, you're right that that could open up, that could free up more bandwidth. But then there's also the money thing. To be honest, we can't afford more people right now anyway. So we're kind of stuck at about 20 employees at the company is where we're going to be in until we grow some more. Gotcha. Gotcha. And to put you on the stand for our future remote work debates, I would like to ask a question <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> where you just said, if you let one person work remote, everyone else would want to work remote too. So are you saying that there is some type of desire that you think like more people may want to work remote? Right. Okay. So yeah, let's dive into this because probably we can't just leave it there. Because um, mm -hmm. so I th that's that's what it sounds like. That's a perfectly reasonable conclusion about what I said. But I actually don't think it's quite that. Um, and I was just talking about this in a group brainstorming where I talk with three random people at the company. I do this once a week. Uh, all three people are in the camp of they want it to be in person. They they don't want to work at a fully remote company. They like the, you know, we still do three days a week that you can work remotely. But what's interesting is two of the three people were like, I was planning on coming in pretty much five days a week uh, when we came back from the pandemic. Um, but then they came in and other people weren't around. And so they stopped. And then two of them were like, well, I was also going to come in, but nobody else was in. And they were like, well, we should talk because like if we both knew that, maybe we both would have come in. But basically, I think there's kind of this like negative feedback loop where if a few, if one or two people are remote, it makes it worse. And then the people who were on the edge, then they're like, well, it's not worth it for me to come in now. And then they don't come in. And then that makes it worse for the next tier of people. And eventually no one comes in. This is very much a parallel jump. So I've warned you, <laughs> <laughs> but I've started this habit uh, in my journals of writing down my theses. So some of these are like investment plays. Some of them are just this meta trends idea that I talk about a lot. One of those is around real estate and thinking about when remote work really picks up, it becomes, I won't say it becomes less about physical networks still matter, but it's not about, hey, the financial infrastructure is in New York, or perhaps mm -hmm. this remains true, the uh, Hollywood infrastructure is in LA, but it becomes more about, we put more weight on quality of life. We put more weight on like hard to recreate natural experiences. They have skiing, they have weather. They These things that are hard or impossible to move from one place to, a, to another. And one thing is like that, what you just talked about with physical network effects, where you have some people on the edge, you have the like true believers. These are the people that are like always posting to Twitter. Uh, you have the lurkers <laughs> and maybe those lurkers are like the people on the edge. Uh, so yeah, this may no, not go anywhere, but that's something that's very top of mind of, just the power of physical networks. It could probably be like a crappy place in terms of climate, but you have some like core uh, physical network there that draws everyone else there. Yeah. I mean, there's no reason anyone should want to live in New York. If, if all the cities on earth were like vanished and we were going to rebuild somewhere, no one would be like, New York's the place that I want to be. And yet 
I know a lot of people, that's where they want to be. <laughs> I love New York, but I can't disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so cool. Anyway, so yeah, pulling back, we uh, made that higher than, and probably, so we need to go out and hire a new CRM coach, that's what we call the support people, to replace the person who's moving into the dev team. But at that point, we should be at 20 employees, and I think that's that's going to be our steady state for probably quite a while, actually, unless our growth um, picks up because we're at this weird dynamic where we have guaranteed raises for everybody every year. And basically, our projected growth is roughly the amount it takes to cover the guaranteed raises. So we're growing revenue, but it's not enough to really hire more people right now. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, I think that's cool what the developer is doing because that's basically what I do in my last job of, hey, I'm not leaving for another place. I'm just taking a mini retirement. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's also, I mean, so powerful having a, so about half of our dev team right now started in customer service and like you could argue maybe like from a pure computer science theory standpoint, you could get people more knowledgeable if, if they had majored in computer science, but the power of someone who really understands the customer can get on the phone and talk to somebody. Oh, it's, it's huge. It's worth so much. Great point. Great point. Um, so yeah, I've got, I got some more updates, but let's bounce it over to you. You got anything going on? Yeah. Uh, so we're hiring analysts right now, and these are people that will, uh, basically write reports. I'll move to more of an editor role. I still may do some writing from time to time. And I think the most interesting thing that I can share in the process is something that we experimented with around, uh, like paid referrals. So if you refer, uh, someone and that person mentions you, uh, in their application, they pass our trial phase. You basically get $500 USD and uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum. And it's surprisingly effective so far where people have emailed their mailing list. People have shared on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I could go into more detail, but it's like I'm kind hmm. of it's a live like hiring process. So I'm sort of being guarded about how much yeah. to share. But uh, I would say I highly recommend this. And it's something that I'm thinking about beyond uh, just hiring processes to like, how could this work in terms of customer acquisition? How could it work in this area, this area? Uh, because it's it seemed to have a material impact. Yeah. So how'd you actually promote that? Like you just sent it out to your list and said, if anyone knows any uh, anyone to refer, here's the deal. Yeah, this is a great short story. So I basically staggered uh, emails. So maybe like a month before the role was posted, I just dropped in an email that, hey, we're going to hire uh, a Trends VC analyst. If you want to be the first one to know about it, join this form. And I just sent them like a tally form. So like 160 people signed up for that. Some of them Trends Pro <laughs> members, some of them not. So they found out about the posting first. And then shortly after that, I sent it to Trends Pro members. And then I sent it to like 48,000 people, everyone else. And I was having a weekly check-in with Alex, who runs marketing slash social media for us. And we were talking about when to announce this publicly. And during our call, he was like, I just got a notification on a Twitter account. Someone retweeted it. And he was like, what should I do? I was like, well, I found the tweet. I was like, I just retweeted it and liked it. So I guess the cat's out the bag. And that's our strategy. <laughs> We've just been retweeting people, tweeting about the role on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, just to show you like how quick that feedback loop was. And it had just went out like an hour uh, before our check-in to the massive list. Awesome. So it just yeah. kind of, you, you did a bit of marketing, but it, it kind of took off on its own. Yeah. So I would say email, Twitter, and then what was 
embedded in the job, like the referral itself at the very bottom was referred friends yeah. uh, with the process of how to say that you were referred by someone. So can you say like, or, or are you tracking like who's applying for this that you generated versus how many are referred? Do you have any numbers you can share? Is that kind of uh, confidential for now? <laughs> I don't think that part is confidential. I also wouldn't put a lot of faith in these numbers because this is very much a uh, spitballing. Uh, what is five out of 14? That's about 33%. I would mm-hmm. say where it came from referrals. Wow. Yeah. Pretty significant. Yeah. That's awesome. So, and yeah, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, $500 to, to hire somebody, that's nothing. Like, yeah, I've worked places before where it's like, Hey, this, they'll offer it to recruiters. They'll offer it to current employees. Say like, if you can find us a senior software engineer or hell a junior software engineer, we'll pay you $10,000. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a no brainer. Yeah, that's great. So do you have any, you said you're thinking about this with customers and stuff. I have, or uh, less annoying serum has a, uh, like a customer referral program that it's probably like too underpowered. It's basically you get a $10 credit and they get a 10, a, an extra free month on their trial. Um, we haven't really been able to get any any meaningful results with that. And there's actually this book called Punished by Rewards, which is kind of saying that if you put uh, numbers on stuff and the numbers aren't really big, that uh, they actually cheapen it. Um, mm-hmm. it. The book is more it's more nuanced than that. It's about how like, you know, giving kids stickers when they do well, rather than just saying, hey, good job or like all of these things, you know, incentivizing the behavior you want. But anyway. We've, we've struggled to get the referral thing to work. Do, do you have thoughts on like h- how you're going to take the next step with this? Yeah. So we have a referral program coming out uh, and the reward isn't cryptocurrency or fiat or anything. It's just a giveaway. At least that's where we're starting. That's step zero, uh, a giveaway of a Trends Pro membership. And then with each person you refer uh, between the release of reports, that's like one entry into the giveaway. And then mm. we'll do the raffle. We're using Spark Loop for this. I think what's really happened, because I think that you're right, uh, that in some ways, I don't know what the right mix was that went into this recipe, but we got probably got lucky in some ways. There's something about the way we structured this that probably works better than most referral programs. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because now I have more confidence to like stick it out and iterate with other versions. So if we try this for customer acquisition and the first three tries don't work out, I might try four or five other things because of this like mm-hmm. small win, if that makes sense. I yeah, keep thinking definitely. about uh, the founder and CEO of Calendly where he talked about he may have never gotten in sales if he didn't like get lucky on his first sale. Like He had a lot <laughs> of bad luck or bad experiences after that, but he knew it was possible because of that one positive experience in the beginning. That's uh, that's such a good point. I just want to call that out because like do you do, are you do you like get interviewed a lot on like tell us about how you got started and all that stuff? Are, are you doing all that stuff? Man, I I have a process to like keep that at bay. Like this form people have to send out, and it's probably like thirteen or fourteen pending interviews. Yeah, I, I do them from time to time, but yeah, because <laughs> I I I probably don't get nearly as many requests as you do. But having been at the in in the game for longer than you, I've I've done my fair share. And one of the questions I just never have a good answer for is they're like, "How'd you know this was going to work?" And I. I never thought of the language you just said, but yeah, it really was like, you only need one customer or one, yeah, one good experience, as you said. Um, and that proves that it's possible. I am going to steal that and start using that as my answer. <laughs> please, please do. Um, cool. So, okay, back to me, I guess. 
I'm not sure if there will be anything to talk about here, but I just wanted to run through some things I've been working on yeah. recently. Um, one is I just wrote up a new equipment budget for employees. And the, I, I don't think there's probably anything to be learned from the equipment budget itself. Like, it's pretty straightforward. And I uh, wrote a blog post about it. If anyone wants to read it, it's on lessannoyingbusiness.com. But it just reminds me, I've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks uh, writing policies and stuff or rewriting, you know, going back and tweaking stuff. And it is just so extremely time consuming, even for pretty boring stuff that uh, like every, basically the, the summary of the equipment budget, everybody gets an allowance every year and they can spend it on whatever they want. Like basically that's the whole thing. But I mean, it took like a week of time to figure out, th think through all the edge cases and what about this? What about that? What if someone starts in the middle of the year? What if uh, when someone leaves, what do we do with their current equipment? What if someone's computer breaks in the middle of it? Um, and then writing it up so that it's communicated clearly to everybody so they actually know the policies. Um, I think that's kind of just the job, but it's it does not get a lot of credit as like what the people running companies are spending time on, I don't think. Hmm. I'll tell you the thing, and this is taking it in a slightly different direction, but I'm just thinking about last episode, we had the conversation about uh, step one, step two, and step three of businesses with like step three being somewhere in the area of succession planning. Uh -huh. And it's just like, man, like you guys are super far along because it, it's because <laughs> I'm like, man, the things that I guess my next update will be around me finally coming to terms with the uh, fact that like we need deadlines and deadlines are useful. But this is such a basic thing compared to something uh -huh. that's like so evolved as like an equipment budget. So that's the only thing. <laughs> Yeah, but well, yeah. well. So let's go to yours though. So you're you're realizing you need deadlines. Like, what are you doing? I mean, maybe you have more to say about that. But like, yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. Like, how are you communicating that to people? Because because it's a shift, right? If you go from no deadlines to like all of a sudden we got deadlines. If you do that wrong, the team is going to be like, well, what the hell is someone about to get fired? Is Drew mad at us? Like, what happened here? And that's why I'm super super grateful, uh, and I feel lucky for the team that we have because. This morning, like we have a check-in structure uh, where part of that is what went well last week, what could be improved last week. And our reaction was that this deadline thing showed up in both where first there's the positive case of, hey, a weakness was exposed last week. The fact that we don't have clear contracts for this one process that depends on multiple people like holding up their end of the bargain. Uh, mm -hmm. That didn't happen, but now we have that weakness exposed and this is an opportunity to improve. And then the clear what could be improved is that process. And without like, I, I had this natural reaction, but without saying anything, Ashwin, who I work with on operations, like he led with that line of thinking. Uh, so I had to also add that to what's going well of like somehow, I don't think it's by mistake, but we landed on this like high agency culture of like accountability, uh, seeing problems as areas because I, I do agree with you of and that was something that I was worried about where I actually led with what the deadline should be and expected some pushback around like, hey, maybe we should be more lenient here. And I could have dealt with some pushback, but thankfully there was none because we do have this attitude of like, hey, this went wrong. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Something else is going to go wrong next week, but it's only a problem if we let it continue to be a problem. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask the uh maybe the the phase two company question here which is when you hire the next person they weren't in on that conversation how do you how do you convey that to them to make sure that they maintain that culture you've already got yeah so this goes back to the book traction where 
it's actually a to do for me this week to add those deadlines to our accountability chart. So if someone else, if a process relies on someone else, they should expect that, hey, like they're going to have that clear item under their like name in the accountability chart when they're added to our accountability chart if they're hired. So it's just sort of, I wouldn't say baked into the DNA, but it goes into this sort of like cohesive entrepreneurial operating system that we're working on. And that's mm -hmm. where we would slide it in. Cool. What's yeah. your approach? So we don't really do deadlines too much um, unless, you know, every once in a while there's like one imposed on you, like GDPR, the European regulation passed, and it's like you have to have this ready by a certain date. But mostly we don't self-impose deadlines. What are you doing to like get people to want to hit the deadline, but not turn it into like an unhealthy environment where people are burning out because of it. Yeah. You just reminded me of, I think, I think my opinion is more nuanced than I let it on to be where like week to week, the weekly to do items. I most, I complete like 90% or 95% of the time. I complete all of my week to week items for the rest of the team. It may be less so. And I'm not like screaming at anyone if uh, items drag over from one week to another, but when there are what, what I'll just go into details around what happened. So mm -hmm. I traveled tomorrow and I haven't been staging free reports. So someone else on the team has been staging free reports, but there were no clear expectations around when the reports would be staged so that we could like hit approve and send. And sorry, and, can you can yeah. just add some definitions here? When you say you haven't been staging free reports, what, what does that mean? That means that their pro members, trans pro members, they receive reports first. And usually I'll say three to five days later, uh, non-pro members then receive reports. So they're similar, but there are a lot of things that are stripped out of the reports. There's a lot of copy that's written and added to the non-pro, the free versions of the reports. And since it's, it's, it's going from like, I don't know, 13, 1400 trans pro members to like 48, 49,000 free members. So we're still at a stage where I'm like, okay, this looks good. I'll hit send. Mm -hmm. And that's been the way we've been working. And I'll say at least, I don't know how long it takes uh, someone else on our team to do this, but it's usually taking me like two and a half hours to write the copy and stage reports. I don't enjoy that process at all, <laughs> but I found myself doing it yesterday and I was frustrated the whole time. And I only had myself to blame because those expectations were never set before. Uh, and that's in detail. That's what happened. So going forward, it's, hey, here's the contract of when you can expect to have the raw material, the pro report to then stage the free report based on this is when you will have the free report staged. And then even when it comes to actually sending the free report, since we're still split testing times, we've explicitly stated that, hey, we are split testing. We don't have to do anything uh, definitive right now. And we may even list this actual split test that we will run to figure out what's the best time uh, to send the free reports. But so what happens if you you delegate to somebody else, hey, mm -hmm. get this free report ready to send, the date comes and it's not ready? That's the beauty of our weekly check-in. So what would probably happen is the first week that that happens, that goes into an area that could be improved. The second week that it happens, I may not even wait until the check-in. I may just like reach out to them directly before I check-in and then we still talk about it in the check-in. Mm -hmm. And I'm also assuming that it's not, I don't know at that point what the what the problem, like what's the real issue would be, but I would try to dig into that because by the ter third time it happens, I don't know what else I could do. Like I'm, it's outside of my locus of control at that point. Yeah. That we've communicated expectations, they've been ignored or haven't been met and we're still having the same problem. Yeah. 
I'm just I'm just thinking like generally about deadlines because I'm not a very I'm not a deadline person. And I think the reason is the way I work, I'll have a week where I really don't get a whole lot done. And then the next week I'll get a ton done. And it's just uh, it's the, the nice thing about software as a service. It, customers know we're working on improving stuff, but there's no deadline. There's no like you expect an email once a week or every other week or whatever uh, about new updates. And so we kind of have that margin where as like, I'm not saying people can be unproductive over long periods of time, but they don't necessarily have to hit a specific thing on a specific date. Um, it seems harder in your line of work where your customers are expecting certain things on certain days. It feels like there's a lot more project project management involved in that probably. Yeah. This goes into the difference between media companies and SaaS companies, but I want to come back to that and say this first, (laughs) that I agree with you. And like you, I don't tend to thrive with deadlines, but it's also interesting because being the person that's still writing reports now, even though I'm not staging them, I've also had to change the way I work and change the way I behave to like lead by examples and say like, hey, this is a deadline that I will impose on myself. This is what I Mm -hmm. expect from you. As we hire analysts, that will change. But if there are areas where I'm a potential showstopper in a process, I would still have to like put myself back up there and say like, look, saying, look, I don't. I don't like to work by deadlines either, but this is sort of a production line. And if we're stopped, because like you talked about with media companies, then uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a reality of like this type of business that you've talked about. But again, it doesn't apply to if we're launching a referral program saying like, Hey, we're going to mm-hmm. launch on this date. That's the area where it's looser compared to uh, producing reports where there's like a research process, production process, post-production process uh, where just to, I keep thinking about it like manufacturing, but to keep the line moving, we have to have deadlines. And uh, we talked about this before, but to go back to like media companies and SaaS companies, I had a mastermind this morning with a buddy who's building a SaaS company. And it's interesting because he talked about a direct competitor that they found and they have a different business model, which I think results in, well, we practically know when I say no, we're like 99% sure it results in a uh, like lower lifetime value if they're forced to monetize that same way as the new competitor they found. And in the media business, like, yeah, like you may be competing for attention with TV and apps and all of these other places, but there's no like one-to-one, there's no, there's no such thing as feature parity. So it just goes into the like pros (laughs) and cons of, yeah, like you have to sort of like maintain quality and keep this pace up in the media business, but we also don't necessarily have to, we can actually work with quote unquote competitors uh, and do yeah. some type of like cross promotion because there's no such thing as feature parity there. Right. Pe- people might buy two books or two movies, uh, whereas they don't buy two CRMs. Yeah. Yeah. I can't tell you the number of people that are subscribed to both trends. Yeah. 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 So while you were talking and then I'll stop uh, beating the dead horse here, but I've, I've often had this kind of uh, struggle almost a less annoying CRM between managing the customer service team, which is about half the company. At, at a lot of SaaS companies, customer service is kind of this afterthought, but for us, half the employees are on that team um, and versus kind of the more product team, you know, the developers and stuff like that, where with developers, what I'm realizing hearing you talk is what you're doing with the kind of the media side is like what customer service is. It's a process. It is time-based. Like, while we don't have deadlines with shipping features, we absolutely, I mean, have soft deadlines with when we reply to customers and stuff like that. And it's it's running a process. 
which is just so different from kind of the super creative, unstructured, project-based work of marketing, of development, stuff like that. And it's almost like running two totally separate organizations for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. The community is more of a product now that I think about it. And people may say, why are you working with two developers, all this other stuff? They don't see the amount of automation that goes into standups, that goes into the leaderboard that we have, that goes into these like email triggers where we're notified when people reach 10 day, 30 day, 100 day standup streaks. Uh, and it's much more of a, like, like you said, more creative uh, process where there's less of a need for deadlines on that side of the business, but totally when it comes to the yeah. media side. Yeah. I wonder if you're going to end up like formulating kind of different different management techniques for those two sides of the business and which one's likely to grow more. Like, do you, do you think if you're a, I don't know if you even aspire to be this, but if you are a 50 person company, what percentage of those people are creating content for you versus putting together referral programs, doing marketing, doing the automation stuff, I wonder? Yeah, I could answer that question if I was forced to, but something I think about every night yeah. is the size, the ideal size of TransVC. And it's 10 people where hmm. there are, I'd say five writers. One of those people may be an editor, uh, which will in the near term be my role. Uh, two people on operations, uh, two developers, and then maybe one integrator. And I guess in that way, I'll be the visionary where this is getting far out into the future, like three to five years from now. Um, but I possibly see a reality where I'm more so writing trends VC reports, but about like specific asset classes, whereas we still have trends VC, the original uh, continuing to serve entrepreneurs, whereas the asset class version would more so serve investors. Uh, and hmm. then the integrator and the editor would be useful to sort of take things off my plate that I currently um, that I'm responsible for. And that would probably just emerge out of the writing team that we have of, you know, who who would be a great editor. For our an best. integrator is an entrepreneurial operating system term, if I'm not mistaken. That's yeah, kind of like a people, COO sort of. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to compare it to as the COO. Yep. Cool. Cool. That's awesome that you've got a uh, of that that vision. I've done that many times throughout the years, and it's always been wildly wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, it's helpful to have it so that you you, you know you have to take your next step towards some vision, even if the vision is uh, ends up being totally wrong in the future. Yeah, I've been planning my days since 2013 and time slotting everything. And I don't know how many thousands of days that is, but a day has never gone exactly as planned, but it's been yep. useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool, cool. Uh, I've got a lot of topics here and probably I'll just do one more and then we can move on to kind of other stuff. Um, this is breaking the third wall, I guess, but we have two hours and we just had the conversation about episode length. So feel free to throw more yeah. if you want. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, and yeah, we'll have to ask the uh, listeners what they think about. We're probably going to split this recording up into multiple episodes. It'll be interesting. Um, yeah. Have you seen Calm Company Express? Calm Company Express. No. It is, I think, I'm not sure if it's 100% official yet, but like, Tyler Tringas, the head of Calm Company Fund, has been tweeting about it. So I don't think I, I, I'm not like sharing any secrets here or anything. Like I think it's a public blog post. But basically, so context: Calm Company Fund is that what it's called? Calm Company mm -hmm. Capital Fund. Yeah, uh, they invest in businesses sort of like ours, right? Like not not venture capital type companies, but 
companies that would otherwise be bootstrapped and profitable. Uh, but they're also trying to find other, my understanding is they have like investors who are interested in putting more money in than, than they can smartly. In, uh, I don't want to say that. I don't know what their reasoning is behind doing this, but basically they are talking about buying chunks of already established profitable companies. So like they say companies with between one and 20 million uh, in annual revenue um, that they would buy like five to 15% of it, not not as an investment into the company, but to, to let the founders and the other shareholders take some money off the table, uh, basically to give them a little more financial comfort so that they can stay committed to the business. Um, seems interesting to me. I don't know. I guess you haven't heard of it before, but do you have any initial reactions to that? Yeah, I had to look up Nathan Lotka and Founder Path. This is, it's very different because we're talking about equity compared to debt. Uh, but just in terms of like the number numbers in the scale that they're talking about reminds me of a uh, founder path. That's another conversation we can have around like whether debt or equity makes sense, but this is about like asset allocation and you're trying to diversify some risk away uh, from your business. What, what are your yeah. thoughts here? I, I have like I have some <laughs> complex thoughts, but what are yours? Well, yeah, I decided, so less knowing serum would fit right in the sweet spot of this because mm -hmm. we're at, 3.4 million ARR right now. So not, not halfway in their range, but above like, you know, again, it's between one and 20 million. Uh, they say they're probably looking at a five to 10 X, uh, revenue multiple as like how they'd value the business depending on various metrics. So I was kind of doing the math and I was like, wow. So like whatever that comes out to you, 16 million or something like that for the business I own, I own 50% of it in practice. I would actually get more like 40% because we have like various agreements with employees and stuff. I was like, okay. Uh, and, and if they bought 5 to 15%, I was like, I could make a good chunk of money here without really giving up any control. There are no board seats. Uh, it's, it's appealing. I, I've decided not to do it for other reasons, but this is the first time I've even remotely thought about selling equity in Less Annoying CRM. Yeah, yeah. I'm not that familiar with SaaS multiples aside from the uh, micro-acquire memes where people talk about uh, I guess the high valuations, but, uh, does that seem, does this seem on par with, uh, the valuation that a SaaS company may get if they sold instead of selling a piece? Yeah. My impression is there's kind of two ways companies get valued. Well, sorry, I'm going to say three ways companies get valued. I've heard that for smaller companies, like if you're maybe below 1 million a year in revenue, it's, you're not going to get as good of a multiple. I'll admit I don't fully understand why, but basically once you get, you're probably going to be valued based on something other than revenue. You're going to be valued based on like, uh, what do they call it? Uh, founder discretionary income. Did, did your yeah, hat that you just put on say something? Yeah, I, I, just, I can barely I see your video. I miss it. it was a micro-acquire hat. I oh, micro-acquire hat. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, the video is a little grainy. Um, so my understanding, yeah, micro-acquire is one of the companies that says this, right? That lower value companies get based on the Founder discretionary income, I think is the term they use, which mm -hmm. is like basically how much money the founder's taking. Uh, once you're above a certain threshold, you get valued more commonly uh, as a revenue or a profit multiple. And I think five to 10x is pretty common for SaaS. Five to 10 is kind of high compared to uh, for other industries, but SaaS, I guess it's considered very, a very, like a dollar of revenue in SaaS is not the same as a dollar of revenue from like e commerce or something. But then there's also the third type, which is uh, strategic acquisitions, where they're not acquiring you for the revenue. They're acquiring you for, you know, a distribution channel or basically they think you're worth more to them than you are to yourself. 
And at that point, I think the numbers can get way, way higher. And it's the, the sky's the limit there. Absolutely. Such good points. But five to 10, it seems pretty, pretty good to me. Like mm -hmm. hard to complain about that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, we're not going to do it because I think long-term less annoying CRM, as soon as you bring on a, an outside shareholder, even if they're one of the good ones, like I very much trust that Calm Capital, uh, Calm Company Fund would be as good of a shareholder as you could have. But for example, if we wanted to ever turn into an employee co-op or, you know, we talked about, like you said, succession planning last time, it just limits a lot of your options in terms of you can't give away equity the same way anymore. You can't like governance rules are more set in stone. It, it just limits options in the future. And so I didn't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I can think of a thousand permutations of where I wouldn't say handcuffs. That's like pretty uh, brutal visualization, but you just lose some freedom when you bring these other stakeholders in. And there are some people that may not care. There's a marketplace out there. I think I remember the name, but just in case I get it wrong, I won't throw a specific name out there. But uh, basically the investors got screwed. They signed the safe and it was like an option, not a contract that like, hey, this founder has to follow through and do this. But I think most founders would feel an obligation to whoever invested uh, and would seriously take that advice, even if it doesn't fit their personal missions or the other stakeholders at the table. And you get back into that stakeholder dilution problem I talk about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but so even though I'm not going to do it, I, I think the Calm Company Express thing, very cool idea. I hope it works because when you think about, like, I kind of hate the fact that everybody seems to think you can run a business. Well, basically, you, you got to exit eventually. Um, and I get it. If, if you don't want to run the business anymore or whatever, by all means, go ahead and sell it. But there should be, I think, more on-ramps towards running a business forever while still being able to, like, get financially comfortable uh, faster. Um, so anyway, I, it's it's a nice middle ground between getting acquired and just doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, and this is something else I've been thinking about uh, since you brought this topic up, but I didn't want to seem like an asshole. <laughs> but it's around, um, I guess it's around thinking about like, okay, we chose the bootstrap, which probably means that we weren't spending unprofitably to get there. Mm -hmm. So if you're taking money off the table, I'm just wondering about the, in terms of like financial comfort, comfort, the difference between selling and taking some money off the table at this stage. And this is basically the difference between, and this is going extreme to prove a point, the difference in like quality of life between having like 300 million and a billion dollars. We're not talking about those numbers, but we're also not talking about having like only paper wealth. We're assuming that you bootstrapped up to this point. So you've at least had the option to take some money off the table, hopefully invest some or most of that. Yeah. Yeah. I often have the same question when I listen to other like SaaS founders talk and like one that comes to mind. Uh, well, I probably shouldn't say anyone's name because I, I don't mean this as a criticism, but it might come off that way. So I won't I won't say anyone's name. But okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I listen to various podcasts and stuff and people talk about this. Like I've got all this money tied up in my business. And they're like worried about it financially, but I'm like, aren't you making more money doing that than you did at your last job? Like this isn't any riskier than just having a job, I don't think at that point. Mm -hmm. And that's how I feel myself. Like I, this year I'm getting paid $184,000 from Lesson Wing CRM, which is like 
not probably a little less than I could make in the going and getting a job, but I love my job and I could, I could pay myself more. I'm like choosing to do this because I want to reinvest in growth, you know? So yeah, I, I don't know if you're asking me specifically versus more generally, but that, that's certainly how I, I you, feel. You helped me feel less isolated there where it's just <laughs> like, okay, like this isn't, you know, I'm a paper billionaire or whatever. It's like, no, you have the option to take money off the table as you go, you know, and they want to know, I'm looking at the form now, like how long have you been in business? If you've been in business three, five, seven years, Mm-hmm. that's a decent amount of time to like take capital off the table and not saying that the majority of your, I feel like 95% may be a bit extreme, but the majority of your wealth may not be uh, tied up in the company, but it goes back to uh, sort of the diminishing returns of wealth and not saying that, Hey, you don't get any liquidity, but what's the difference between this versus just selling the company because you've gotten bored or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's that hopefully if you're not bored, what do you do? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's Yeah, there's no clear answer. I'm, like you said earlier, I'm glad this option is available, that we have more options. And right. then to get like super meta, I think it was the last uh, episode where we talked about sort of VCs having the incentives to make, get on TechCrunch and get on CNBC and make this feel like it's the only way. Now someone else has an incentive to like push bootstrapping so that, they can become Calm Company Express customers, you know, push a different yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. I Okay, last point and then I'll stop talking. I, we I, we both have this where we could just keep talking about one thing forever, right? Uh, when when I moved to St. Louis, like we, we started fully remote and then the company kind of consolidated in St. Louis. And at the time we were thinking like, because I was moving from San Francisco where there's this huge ecosystem for, uh, you know, like the normal VC model. And I was like, thinking a little bit too big probably, but I was like, what can we do to make St. Louis an ecosystem for bootstrappers? And I honestly couldn't come up with any answers because I was like, bootstrappers by definition don't need anything, you know? Like, what would what would you even offer anybody? And I couldn't come up with any good answers, but I do think this is moving in that direction of like, uh, the, the way Tyler Tringa says it is, I believe he uses the term, we're in the deployment phase of SaaS right now, where it's like, yeah, there's not all this really exciting innovation anymore in terms of like brand new tech and all that in the, the B2B SaaS world, but there's a lot more stability. And so like, what if there were this ecosystem of companies that can acquire you, companies that can invest while y- you maintaining control, experienced executives who can come in and help run the company as it scales, like Silicon Valley offers all that stuff to the hyper growth model. I don't know that anyone really has that solved for the kind of, you know, the, the bootstrapped ish type companies. And this might be one part, one small part of that ecosystem. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. That's it for this week's discussion. As I mentioned at the beginning, we actually recorded uh, at least three episodes worth all at once here. So we'll be uh, rolling those out uh, over the coming weeks. And as always, please let us know if you have any feedback. Have a good one.